recording again. Uh, again? Again. The march of time. Yeah, it must mean that it is another Religious Studies Project uh, episode. Fantastic. Um, I'm Chris Carter. I'm joined as ever by... Uh, David Robertson, I think. Yeah, I think that is your name. Um, we're hoping that, that, that you're hearing this podcast because, um, recently we had a sort of <laughs> scary moment with, where the entire website disappeared. But fingers crossed, it is still there. Touch, touch wood. Touch wood. Um, all of those, um, superstitious things. Why is that superstition and not religion, David? I don't know. Something else that people may think of as sort of superstition and not religion is Slenderman and various other forms of online mythology. So to sort of take that question head on and um, tell us all about it, we've got Vivian Asimos being interviewed by Ross Downing. Take it away. My name is Ross Downing and I'm interviewing uh, soon to be Dr. Vivian Asimos <laughs> at the Belfast, Belfast Conference at um, Queen's so Vivian uh, has a BA from South Florida University, an MA from Edinburgh, and is currently doing a PhD in Durham. The project entitled Slenderman Mythos, a Neo-Structuralist Analysis of an Online Mythology, and is supervised by Jonathan Miles Watson. She has a forthcoming article in Implicit Religion in relevance to the study of video games. She also runs a podcast called Religion in Popular Culture. Welcome. Thank you. The Slender Man. Can you explain briefly what the Slender Man is? The Slender Man is a monster. So he is typically seen as a tall man in a suit, but there are small kind of shifts to him. He lingers in the background of photographs, is said to make children disappear. He's got very inhuman characteristics to him and is most commonly seen without a face, though there are kind of shifts in, in how he appears from image to image and story to story because of the nature of the stories is mass communal storytelling. So you get lots of people all telling the story in their own creative way. So you get lots of different variants. Uh, it started in 2009 and very uncharacteristic of an online anything. Uh, it's still kicking around, um, not quite as much as it probably was in other years, but um, it's still heavily present. I still hear jokes every so often when I'm trying to not focus on my work, uh, where they will make a joke about the Slender Man, which, so it's still, it's still being kicked around and people still recognize it, despite how long it's been, which is very uncharacteristic of it, which is why I, I find it so interesting that, uh, you know, why has it still kind of lingered, essentially. And it's not just, just another one of these online um, things either because it's had it's had real life connections and, and it's, it's one of those few things from that creepypasta no sleep type world that's actually been made into a, a movie right now. Yeah? yeah, yeah, it's coming out soon. Unfortunately, not properly timed for me to actually write about it in the thesis, fun enough. But yeah, it's it's coming out soon. And there is a bit of research on the Sunderman mm -hmm. in academia that has happened before, but very few, and most of them center on the 2014 Wisconsin stabbings. Um, they make those stabbings basically the central focus of their research, but basically what's that doing is taking away 
everything that that story is doing for the community which first started it. They very much kind of don't like that action. They don't like actual physical real world violence. Mm -hmm. So I decided to take a completely different approach where I don't talk about it. I don't approach them about it. And I just simply talk about what is this doing for you? Let's talk about your community as it is and as you understand it. And that approach really hasn't been taken with Creepypasta or the Slenderman more specifically before. Yeah, I mean, it's a really rich area of mine of, of data. And it, I, I think you find that quite often when, when there is a real world tragedy or, you know, something that grabs headlines, academics will focus on that to feed, you know, the monster instead of looking at the richness, what lies behind yeah. it. Because it's often when there's a tragedy, it's a, per- a peripheral thing. Is that, is that the case there? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, I have been known to compare probably an over-exaggeration, I will admit, but I have been known to compare getting questions about the stabbings when I present a paper as if I was presenting a paper on British Muslims in Durham and I got a question about, well, what about ISIS? Which suddenly everyone kind of shrinks back from and goes, oh, that's not like it at all. But it is because that's basically a community group saying that action and those people do not represent us. And yet you're making them represent that community. And it's also a big problem that you see in popular culture in general, that it's always kind of blamed for the bad things in society. I mean, we had it in rock and roll and now it's video games in the online environment. And who knows when it's going to be replaced by the next element of popular culture that's going to be blamed for all of the bad things. So um, it's just another element, but I think it's more important for popular culture to be seen as a positive force as well as other things as well. Yeah, why, why do you think it's such an enduring tale? Like, for instance, why would someone want to make that into a, into a film, a horror film? Because, uh, so it's really interesting, because there's a lot of creepypastas that came before, a lot very similar, but very structured as far as not, not as I'm a structuralist in the way that I approach my, my study, kind of following Levi Strauss but shifting slightly. So not that kind of structured, but structured in a way of how people approach the narrative is slightly different in the sense that a lot of the creepypastas that came before, so things like Candle Cove, I should probably explain for people who don't, who haven't spent the last four years of their life embedded in this. Basically, Candle Cove is this story of a bunch of people kind of discovering that they remembered a TV show from when they were kids called Candle Cove that doesn't actually exist. But it was a very staged narrative of people kind of purposely posting in order to remember this thing, in order to unfold the narrative the way they wanted the narrative to unfold. So it's not quite as spontaneous as The Slender Man was. That wasn't that wasn't staged. That was definitely people kind of grabbing onto something random and really building on it. Uh, then you have things like Ben Drowned, which is a story of a haunted Nintendo cartridge of the game Majora's Mask, the Legend of Zelda game. And that is, again, it's just a person posting a story, which was then, you know, shared around. And that was a creepypasta. But again, you only have one person telling a story. You don't have the communal kind of co-creation. And what's interesting about the Slenderman is while there was a creepypasta community that existed before him, he didn't really arise or or get a, that community only around him. He ended up drawing in a lot of other people's it actually started to spread to other community groups as well. So it started on a forum thread, but then one of the users on the forum thread wanted to make web videos in order to tell his side of the story. So he posts the link to a YouTube channel on the forum thread and kind of post those things. But suddenly it's not just the forum members that are looking at those videos. And this is the Marble Hornet stories. And those became 
some people's initial introduction to the Slenderman. To give away my age a little bit, I was an undergrad when I was first introduced to the Slenderman, and it was through Marble Hornets, which was still coming out at the time. And, you know, it was one of my friends saying, you have to watch this. This is so creepy. And of course, I'd never heard of it before. My friend had clearly not known the background before Marble Hornets. Then there was a video game that came out. Another new introduction for people. So now you've got gamers that are into this story and now they're discovering it for the first time. And so you kind of have this building of, of new community members, but it's based on basically individual creativity. So on the forum thread, it started with one person posting and then another person was like, oh, that's a cool idea. And then took a little bit of that idea, shifted it a little bit to fit their own creativity and posted. And that continued to go on. That led to a guy on Marble for Marble Hornets creating that. Another person looks at that web video and says, I like that idea, makes his own web video that is also similar to the Slender Man. And now suddenly you've got multitudes of web videos that are telling the story. Then another guy says, I like that, but I'm a, I'm a video game designer, so I'm going to make a video game based on what I see in this. And so suddenly you have a bunch of different individual creativity that is all contributing to the same narrative, and it's all seen as authentic and all seen as part of the canon, essentially. So nobody is ousted from being, you know, oh, that's not right. It's everyone's included in it, and it makes this kind of impromptu community, mm. which is really fascinating. It sounds a bit Darwinist as well, you know, like if there's a really cool riff or variant on, on the story, you know, the best ideas, the one become naturally more popular and used, applied to something. I mean, that's, and to be able to trace that in live yeah. time, I think is quite an exciting set of data to be able to work with. It definitely draws on kind of common threads seen in old mythology and folklore and that kind of stuff. You see these connective threads. He's always in the forest, for instance, which is where mm. a lot of the evil fairies lurk. And in sure. fact, some of the fake connections to old folklore of the Slenderman compared him to fairies that were in German folklore or Scottish folklore. And they actually had names for him, so it was De Grossman in German. Sorry for any <laughs> improper <laughs> pronunciation on that one. But it was saying, somebody basically posted saying, oh, I heard about this, but he had the name De Grossman, and it was from, you know, my grandmother who was German, and this is how she told me about be careful of the Black Forest, and there's right. this fairy that steals children. And mm. so you get this kind of connecting to the common elements that freak mm. you out. Right. essentially that's kind of always there in the back of you know all myths and folklore and they mm. definitely grabbed it knowingly that this was oh i know that that freaks me out so i'll combine that with this other thing that i see and now we've got this whole new element well as, as a case study and being able to to see that and see how uh, not to get into you know psychology too much but the, the cognitive aspects and uh, the 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 meme uh, how something goes literally viral as if it is like a, a virus idea that like takes over people and is used applied in in it takes over their their own creativity like you say if someone's a game designer doing a movie or something like that i think this has broad social applications because if we see your work if if, if we can see that as an example there we can apply that to how other online religions are developing um, because these are also you know in a way brainwashing people because you, you, no one can get away from the internet. Yeah. And if you are drawn to, like, the Matrix because you love the films, and then you're a little bit spiritually interested, and you know, uh, people are doing a Matrix religion. It, it seems almost like you know, people are being certain people are being led down a, 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a bit of an issue with that in the sense that, I, first of all, I don't like the term viral, which I know is, uh, I'm gonna, <laughs> sorry for like being that person who's like, I don't like that term. But it tends to be associated, I think, with popular culture and particularly the internet because of the sense that it makes it feel like it's something that happens to you. Mm. But I think what's most demonstrated by not only my case study, but a lot of other people's case studies that happen online is that it's people actually taking control. So it's not that mm. something's taking control of them, it's them taking this and saying, I'm going to put my own creativity on this. Right. And it's an agency that I think the word viral strips away. Yeah. And I think connected to that is this sense of, particularly in the academic study of religion, I think it's very easy to look at the big, basically to look at the things that you can clearly point to and say, that's that's a religion, and I'm going to mm. talk about that. Right. And with hyper-real religions, the things like Jediism, that's something that's happening of people going, that's pop culture becoming a religion. I'll talk about that. Mm. And I think it's really important to talk about. I don't want to, mm -hmm. you know, where I do think it has its place. However, what's missing then is the middle ground. Yeah. So you have the people who aren't interested in popular culture at all, and then you have these extreme interested members but you don't have to write Jediism on a census record to have Star Wars mean something to you. And there's a really weird middle ground. So for me, what I've always found fascinating about the study of religion in general, even when I wasn't doing pop culture, and what I've really grabbed onto is pop, in pop culture studies is that gray area between religion and non-religion, mm. where it's incredibly hyper-meaningful and might be religion, but mm. might not be all at the same time and mm. where is that cross-section what is religion yeah. when you look at it in that way and basically what it ends up being is when does something go from hyper meaningful to banal or backwards right. you know when is it just something that you have on in the background because you think it's fun and when is it something that you think about constantly yeah. or yeah. you're reminded of in your everyday life and you get tattoos of it and you you know think about it i have um my master's was on legend of zelda uh, the video game and there was somebody who had a tattoo of the triforce and they told on their arm and they told me so for people i guess who don't know the triforce is a three triangles and they are made up of the ideas of power wisdom and courage which is found in the the world but basically the myth ends up being that essentially the the perfect person who can can touch this item from the gods, the Triforce, is someone who has equal parts, power, wisdom, and courage. <laughs> so this person, when they had the tattoo, they described it as a way of they were having an issue in life, or maybe they were starting to get angry about something that they felt they shouldn't be angry about, or, you know, when you have those, those times mm -hmm. in life, and they would look at it and they would remember about how the ideal person has power, wisdom, and courage. Right. Now, they would never put Hylian on a census record, associate themselves with that kind of religion, but that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's them changing their identity mm -hmm. and their way of living mm -hmm. in this world based on a video game that they played. Sure. That's and what I find interesting. And this materially allows religious studies scholars to talk about the, the meaning of, of religion, you know, sui generis and the theory of, of religion. How does it work? What is it? Can we say that it is one thing or that it's separate from culture and 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 with the internet you've got these online cultures now you i mean it's it's almost like the internet as a weirder concept uh, as slippery as a concept as religion is you know yeah to put these things together is. online religion or religiosity online or non-religion online it's it gets, it's, uh, it's very tricky very fast right sure <laughs> which is why i think I'm, I'm almost more solid by being in an incredibly gray area right. <laughs> because i can be like well i don't know 
Um, but it, it's very fascinating in that sense. And I think it really demonstrates how, and I, I talked about this, I guess, in my, in my talk of the way that the Slenderman mythology specifically is kind of built on religious literacy. Yeah. And I think there's often this almost implicit thought that the public is very religious illiterate. And yet in 2009, something, someone on a comedy forum post was talking about the concept of a tulpa, which I don't know about anyone else, but I didn't know what a tulpa was in 2009. Mm. So the fact that, I mean, that's an incredible knowledge mm. that's right there. And then they're using it in this way of basically perpetuating a, an online myth. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. And I mean, it's like organic plebeians, non non-scholars, organically working with religious studies or religious exactly. studies questions and trying to make sense of these things. I mean, that's one of the, the nice things, I suppose, about the internet that they can actually produce. But um, one of the things that in, in connection to that, I think uh, there's a phrase, apophatic theology that you mentioned in your, yeah. in your talk. And um, I feel stupid, but I, I'm not really sure what that means. <laughs> it sounds Greek. You shouldn't feel stupid. I <laughs> learned about it while doing that research. So right. it was, I'm not a theologian by any stretch of the imagination. So it was, it was new being in a theological section, trying to read up on this very in breadth of theological discourse of apophatic theology, which is, I think, the Greek for the... There's a less Greek version of it, which is just negative theology, okay. um, which is basically that the human brain or mind, I'm not sure which way they see it, cannot properly know God or mm. know what God is or how God thinks or anything mm. about God. So essentially what that's doing is kind of saying, well, we, we can't really know this because it's too, it's too beyond us. It's too supernatural. It's too otherworldly, mm. which I think in a very Christian context, at least from the bits that I read, I'm sure some theologian might disagree with me, but whatever. Mm. And at least the small bits that I read, the theological stance on it is almost slightly positive. In the sense of being like, oh, you know, God is so beyond us, but we'll just leave it to him kind of a thing. Right. And to see it twisted. So in the Slenderman stuff, they start talking about how the Slenderman is beyond our comprehension. And he doesn't change from image to image. It's that we see him differently because our human mind cannot actually comprehend of him. And suddenly you have that kind of negative theology, but on a monster who steals children and causes violence. And so suddenly this whole idea is completely twisted to a different way of understanding, mm. uh, which I find really fascinating, where suddenly it's not a, oh, it's all great. It's mm. an, oh, shit. Oh, mm. say that? <laughs> I think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I realize I'm not on my own podcast anymore. 
Uh, but it is, it's that kind of like that moment. Mm. And it's, uh, I compared it to Lovecraft's idea of cosmic fear. So in mm. his kind of ancient ones and Cthulhu and stuff is all right. very non-Euclidean geometry and right. how we can't actually see him. We can't mm. actually comprehend of his full right. figure because it's not of us. It sounds very Judaic to me, you know, like the, um, the burning bush and the Holy Spirit, the, these a way of the way that theological texts in Judaism have talked about God is there, but he's like, you know, a disembodied yeah. voice or something. And the other thing with, with Judaism as well is the, the theology. I mean, it has a really rich, perhaps, you know, one of the most, the ultimate theology religions. Um, this idea that, you know, you wrestle with God, you know, uh, to, to try and understand him. And, and it's a constant battle with, with faith. And I think, that ties in here with people inventing something, talking about the supernatural or the, the numinous. What struck me is that these people aren't wrestling with, with God, they're wrestling with the devil. It's a theology about a devil, right? Yeah. And that's, that's really weird. It like, is. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I find it so interesting about it, because it's not something that you see all the time. And yet it makes sense in a way of there is this kind of sense of, of good versus evil, but in a lot of these stories there's not the good. There's just kind of the verse evil. And there's very few of the stories actually mentioned religion in any way. Or at least I, the religion that people would conceive of, your kind of big isms in the world. And one of them was directly talking about Christianity in the sense that in order to escape the Slender Man, they ran into a church. But they still got him. Because the whole idea is that, you know, there is no safety. Not even, not even in religion, not even in Christianity. This can still get you, which is this very almost atheistic understanding Mm. of religion. And yet they're so knowledgeable about these different kind of religious concepts and theologies. And, and, but it's that knowledge that I think makes it so good. (laughs) It's that that makes it such a good myth because it's not just kind of a good story. It's a good story founded on, on real fears and ideas and concepts and, and theories that people struggle with on a, on a regular basis. Right. And, and it's willing, it's willing suspension of disbelief. You know, like the, I think you, you mentioned that on, was it Creepypasta or No, No Sleep? One of these, these forums, I think it's on what they call technically a sub on, yeah. on Reddit. Uh, it was, yeah, know. I think I know what you're talking about. The, or No Sleep had it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. And so what, what was the quote now? Like, uh, it was, it's anything, a rule on Everything the, is true here, even if it's not. Yeah. It's a right. rule on the subreddit. So you have to post in character, which basically means you have to post as if the story's true. Mm. And all the stories are in first person. So it's all, mm. this really happened to me. This is my experience, but they're all very crazy. And, you know, same kind of idea of monsters and weird deaths and people disappearing and, you know, horror mm. that you would find. Mm. But it's all in first person. And it's all talked about as if, and all of that also extends to the comments. Mm. So you can't just say, oh, that was a really good story. You have to mm. be like, oh, are you okay? And mm. update us with this. And have you looked into this aspect? And you have yeah. to talk about it as if it's, as if it's really happening. And in their, their rules on the side, it's about that. They say everything is true here, even if it isn't. Wow. Which I think is just the best way to sum up yeah. most of creepypasta communication, which is this right. in-character way of talking it seems almost like when people are participating in this and they're writing it sounds almost like a ritual you know you go back to the the classic you know Durkheim or something where you know if if we're talking about maybe this is a myth you you referred to that in in your articles like myth Mm -hmm. mythology and myth and if that's a ritual 
you know, we're, by participating in this and willing to, you know, we know it's not yeah. real, but we're, we're, by this ritual, we're, we're somehow engaging with this, with this myth. So it reinforces the power of the myth and everyone can, can share in that. There's very much like a strong community vibe there. So it feels almost like a, it, it does almost what religions do. Yeah, it's a sense of embodiment, which is, I always feel weird talking about that because every time I sit in like embodiment anything else, they keep talking about actual bodies. And it's like, well, but you can also embody something just sitting in front of your computer because this is what's happening. They're embodying it in their online speech. But yeah, there's quite a lot of kind of of twisting of these things. And I tend to not like to use the word religion like this is a religious thing. But I do find that a lot of the communities, and not just the creepypasta communities, but some of the other popular culture groups that I end up doing side projects or other research with, tend to use religious language, but not the word religion. So I went to a a fan convention, which I was supposed to get stuff on horror video games for my thesis, and it didn't work out. But while I was there, they kept talking about the travel there as if it was a pilgrimage. So they're using that language, and some of them even used the word pilgrimage. Hmm. And yet... You know, if I were to say, oh, this is a religion, they'd be like, oh, no, it's not. Which is where I think that gray area is very right. important, where they're able to use some of the language. I don't know if they would use the word ritual. That might be one step too much. But they use the word myth very openly. And I don't know if that's because of the kind of common parlance of the word myth. Right. Kind of having been quite destroyed <laughs> yeah, yeah. in a way that ritual really hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's why they're more comfortable using it. But then some people are more comfortable using pilgrimage, which hasn't quite gotten to that point. So it's just interesting to see that they use certain aspects that they're comfortable with, but certain that they're not. If, if we see that as a, a kind of almost a religion or doing what a religion, religious community does, you know, one of the, again, you know, this 18th century kind of, uh, well, it's 19th century type ways of seeing, theorizing religion is somehow helping a community. It's quite Freudian, I suppose, like helping people cope, relieve stress, uh, heal, that kind of thing. How do you, do you think that this, this community is, you know, are, are people helping each other or are they trolling each other or what's going on? Are they just um, playing around and they don't really care about each other? Or? It's hard to tell with the kind of older forms because obviously that's a lot more of a historical study than an anthropological one. Because if I'm looking back at something that happened in 2009, it's hard to chase those people back up and say, well, what were you thinking almost 10 years ago? They're not going to remember even if no. I could find them. So, it, you know, it, it, that's more of a guessing game. But I think for them very early on... It was a community exercise of just, it was fun, but it was an exercise of, you know, if I, especially very early on, it was like, I know the Slender Man and I see that and someone else might not see it. And I'm in the know because I've seen it and I know it. And it ends up kind of combining people together in that aspect. Later on, the horror storytelling online has shifted and it's still in the middle of shifting, which is where my research has gotten very strange. I wish I could kind of end on a more solid and this is it note, but it hasn't quite gotten there yet. Um, but it's shifted to be a much less free expression. I, that sounds almost like it's negative. I don't mean it in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. In the sense that there's not as much of the community involvement. There's a lot more attachment to author, which there wasn't mm-hmm. um, earlier on. And that's not to say that that's a bad thing. It's just a shifting thing. Right. It's evolving. Um, the, the yeah. yeah. And as the internet evolves, obviously these groups are going to evolve. It's just the nature of things. They were the ones that I was able to talk to the most because they're the ones currently doing things. 
So I, when I talked to them, there was a lot more emphasis on what the process of story writing was doing for them. And a lot of it was help. A lot of it was talking about, quite a few of them talked about trauma that they experienced much earlier on in their life and how writing horror actually helped them cope. Because essentially, and this is my theory on it, they didn't say this directly, so I'm not putting word, I'm not going to put words in their mouth, this is my theory, is that it's because it's, they now have the agency over the trauma. They're now in control of the violent actions. And one person even said that it keeps them from having violent actions against themselves hmm. through writing. Right. And this is where when I'm coming back to the, the whole thing with the stabbings and how everyone kind of centers this discussion on it, hmm. they're completely missing that out. Yeah. They're missing yeah. out all these people the that, yeah. that, are, are, that need this yeah. in a sense, in a very positive way. And the fact that I very much expected as a woman going to do research online to be kind of hit with a lot of very negative attacks. It never happened. Um, I went into the community. They were hesitant at first, but only because they didn't want me to be writing anything negative about them. They didn't want me to be writing this article about, look how terrible this community is. So they were very hesitant at first. And I had to basically give them my PhD proposal again, essentially really laid it out to them, really explained exactly what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And suddenly they opened up and they opened up very openly. The very first one I got after that was someone telling me about childhood trauma and abuse. And so that was an immediate opening up. Yeah. And they're all very supportive. And I think that's because of the fact that they all recognize it for what it is, which is this sense of help. And if you need this help, I'm going to help you get better at this thing that helps you. And so it's it, it's a very kind community. It's probably one of the kindest I've been to right. and done research with despite what they're talking about and what I read when I'm not talking to them, yeah. uh, which is fascinating. But yeah, it's it's definitely a very beneficial practice, I think, for people. And it, it definitely, even though, you know, if you were just to, to lay it out and say, there's this thing called Slender Man, most people would say, well, that's not really religion. But what you just said there. I mean, that's what Scientologists do in, in clearing. They, so you tell the, the auditor your, your trauma, and then you relive it enough times to desensitize yourself so that you're clear, that you're free of what you've been through. And these people are, are doing it for each other, themselves, and using Slenderman as that, that vehicle to release yeah. pressure, I suppose, there's, to get clear. There's a lot of similarity, I think. And that's where, again, this gray area, I, I like to say that the Slenderman really lives in gray areas. That's where he thrives is in these gray areas. And that's it. It's the gray area between religion and non-religion of none of these people that I talked to would ever say, oh yeah, this is religious to me. Um, and I would never say that they said that by any means. But the way they use it is very similar to the way that other people use religion. The way they talk about it is sometimes very similar. Not all the time, but sometimes, um, especially when they're playing and they're they're in this in character and they're embodying it. Suddenly it takes on this other. Now it stretches a little bit further into it. And that's what's... So it's almost like they're playing with religion in that sense. And that's where these kinds of religious concepts that build the myth, like apophatic theology, like the tulpa, building it using these religious concepts, they're essentially not just playing with the Slenderman and making it better. They're also going, well, let's talk about tulpas. Like, what do you think about tulpas? Let's play with this idea a bit. Like, let's stretch this idea. Is this something that's cool? Like, and they're essentially playing with, with religion. I think that, that statement has satisfying finality. I think you've nailed it there. 
So thank you, Vivian Asimov. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Ross and, of course, Vivian. Uh, Vivian has been working with the BASR committee recently as a, a webmaster, doing a really good job. And, of course, uh, she hosts her own podcast on, is it religion and popular culture? Is, mm-hmm. that what, is that what it's called? So if you want a deep dive on those kind of subjects, um, do check it yeah, out. Check it out. Um, unfortunately, my brain is not producing the name of it, but I'm sure it, we will have included it in I, the I podcast. I think it's Religion and no. Popular Culture podcast, I think. That'll do. That'll do. Um, sticking with that theme, we've got a new interviewer next week, Carmen Celestini, um, who's been speaking with Douglas Cowan about, well, about the works of Stephen King. Um, the interview is titled America's Dark Theologian, Stephen King, A Religious Imagination Explored. But I had, I had a good, good listen to the, the interview as we do with new interviewers. Um, and I can say it's a very interesting one coming up and that should appeal perhaps beyond our usual constituency as well. So hopefully if you're a new listener next week, um, well, you're not listening right now, so <laughs> I should shut up. But um, from new listeners to new interviewers, let's uh, let's meet Carmen. Hi, my name is Carmen Celestini. I'm a recent PhD from the University of Waterloo in Canada. The area of my research is the overlapping belief systems of apocalyptic Christian thought and conspiracy theories, and how these beliefs affect the American political system. My research looks at the historical trajectory from the 1940s until contemporary times and the role that these fears evoke in political choices, elections, and resistance. Thanks for that, David. I had completely forgotten. That's uh, fine. (laughs) I I have a Stephen King story to share with you. Um, When I was at high school, and this is back in the mists of time in the early 90s, in fact, it might have been about 1990. I was doing six year studies, English literature, and I wanted to write my, uh, I think they called it a dissertation. It was probably about a thousand word essay, um, on Stephen King. And I had to apply for special consideration to the exam board because they didn't consider it literature. And they eventually, I had to like submit a case and I did loads of reading and stuff because I'm writing the essay at this point and they eventually said no. Um, and so I had to quickly come up with a completely different topic. So I didn't do very well in my exam. However, the following year, guess who was added to the list of people that you could do? So, uh, I've got a bitter relationship with Stephen King, but, um, also you, you reformed. The, uh, the system there. I did. I would say. I did. Yeah. So yeah, you stuck it to the man. Um, you, you took a fall for the system, really, you know, like you yourself didn't benefit, but you know. That's right. Later generations have. It's one of a long series of selfless sacrifices in my life, Chris. <laughs> Just like the religious studies project. <laughs> um, wonderful. We'll come back for that next week, listeners. And, um, Keep checking out the website for the responses so ably edited by Rebecca and Mara. And don't forget the special Patreon material. Um, BASR members and uh, and hopefully we'll announce some other ones soon. Um, mm. And as well as the Patreon supporters are able to listen to this now. Discourse is turning out to be a really interesting side 
podcast, a slightly different format from the RSP, but very uh, current affairs based. So we're uh, we're really excited with that. So go and check it out. You might uh, like it a lot. And thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.